What we're typically doing on Sunday mornings before we get into this, just to make, explain, we're going to have this basic format. We're not recording the first part. Sometimes uh, when we're going to share some testimonies, I don't want to have it recorded that uh, on, our, on our archives that all of a sudden Alice here is talking about some individual and saying, pray for this individual, and then that person gets into our archives and hears their name mentioned. Okay, so we want to be tactful with that. Um, so what we're going to do is we're recording. Now, the, the class is being recorded. We have four different classes taking place. If you're not here for any given Sunday and you want to keep up with the material, you can go into our archives, listen to one of the classes. But unfortunately, we're not recording all four of the classes. That's just too complicated as far as electronics. We're recording this class. That means for some of you who are in uh, Pastor Allen's, you're joining us today. You're a little bit ahead because he was doing it a different way than what I'm doing it as far as presenting the material in the time that we have set. And so it'll be a variation if you're in another class or if you pick up something speaking here or miss something. But this is the one, and so you can find it on our archive so you can follow along. This is where we were last week. We were talking about the aspect that many individuals, and I gave you my testimony that I really struggled for for months, for months until almost into my second year of Bible college. And the whole idea is to say, do I know for sure I'm saved? And so I battled with that. We struggled with that. Last Sunday night, we developed a whole message with that that went with the Sunday school lesson. We are in the lesson in your booklet that talks about being eternal security. What we mean by that is this, you cannot lose your salvation. By the way, while I'm rambling here, take your Bibles, go to Matthew 7. Matthew 7 to get started. You cannot lose your salvation. Once saved, we use the phrase always saved. And then this idea, the Bible teaches that the moment that you, you accepted Christ, that Christ and you repented of your sins, Christ made you his child. That relationship is irrevocable. Now, the reasons we believe that is what we're going through right now. I know that this isn't popular in the community. I know that there are other churches that teach differently. But I'm convinced that the Word of God teaches this with, all, with, uh, with great clarity that this is exactly what the Bible teaches. Before I give you the reasons that the Bible indicates one saved, always saved, let's ask this question first of all. This isn't in your notes. It's just put it put there. But this is what we talked about last Sunday night. If you weren't there or if you were there, I want to review it just quickly. The first question that we have to ask is, how do I know that I really got saved in the first place? The reason I say that is this. Um, you probably know, and I know of individuals, that they made a profession of faith. They served the Lord. They were, they were interested in spiritual things. All of a sudden, as time goes by, they have no interest. Maybe as a teenager they had some interest, or as an elementary age, they get to be a young adult. They have nothing to do with the Lord. Or it's somebody who was an adult. They prayed. They got you know, balls of fire. They were going great for a period of time, but then all of a sudden the weeds and the thorns came up. And they pulled them away, and they have nothing in their life that would indicate, at this point, are they saved. The question that often comes up is, well, did they lose their salvation? The Bible would say they didn't. But the question should be, did they ever have it? Were they truly born again in the first place? And so the question that we should ask is, okay, if I'm struggling, if I'm doubting, did I know what I was doing? What, how do I know? And some of us, and we talked about them, we did a silly little interview with one of the, one of the teens last, evening, last Sunday evening about remembering the day that they were born. Most of us don't remember the day we were born physically. Some of us don't remember the things we said when we got saved spiritually. We don't remember it because we were a child or we just don't remember. And and so how do you know if you're really, really born again? 
if you don't remember the exact moment, the exact date, or what you said. There are evidences, we called these last Sunday night, went in depth in this section. You can listen to the message. But we said that there are vital signs. There are indications. You know that you're living because you're breathing, you're moving, you're thinking, your blood is flowing. You know that you're alive. How do you know you're spiritually alive? And so the Bible indicates to us that we can know Contrary to what many churches say, that these things have written that you may know. The Bible says that we should examine ourselves. We talked about this last Sunday evening. The Bible tells us to make sure of our calling election. Now, we do that by the Word of God. We don't do that by saying, oh, this person says that I did it. This person said that's that's okay. There's nothing, nothing evil about that. But you have to compare your life with the Word of God. And when we compare ourselves with the Word of God, and the reason we want to do it is there's Two passages that warn us. This one in Matthew chapter 7. Before I move on, Matthew 7 verse 21. Not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that does the will of the Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied and in thy name cast out devils and in thy name done many wonderful works? And I will profess unto them, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. The point being is there are a lot of people who will profess and insist that they may have made some type of a profession. They may have said something. They may have thought something, but he's going to say, I never knew you intimately. First John chapter 2 supports this idea. First John chapter 2. Go down to verse 3. First John's in the back of before the book of Revelation. First John chapter 2 verse 3. Hereby we do know that we know him. And again, the wording that he's using here is there's a difference in scripture at times between knowing up here and knowing here. So you can know somebody, okay, but you get to know them intimately. We know, okay, as a silly illustration, we all know and could recognize Donald Trump by the, by his appearance, his hairdo, whatever. We know by his voice. We know him, but we don't know him. None of us, are, maybe I'm wrong, none of us are personal friends with him that visit him at his, you know, at his various places. And so here's the difference. It says, we know, hereby do we know him intimately, that we know him. If we keep his commandments, he that says, I know him and keepeth not his commandments is a liar. The truth is not in him. And so he makes a point in First John, there are some people who say they know God, but they really don't. They really don't. They're a liar. And so he gives us tests. How do we know? And so if you didn't mark these down, mark them down. If, put them in the flyleaf of that booklet. Put them in the flyleaf of your Bible. These questions, so if you didn't do it, and the verses, so that if somebody is saying to you, how do I know I'm saved? Somebody's saying to you, you know, I made a profession, but take them to these tests. The first one in First John chapter 2 is this. Do you want to obey God's word? God's word? Do you have a desire to obey God's commands? And by the way, in, in, this isn't perfect. This isn't going to be, okay, we are always continuously, constantly, 100% obeying God's commands. We know that we still struggle. We all do. But is, what is your general desire? Is your general desire, is this your normal response to situations that you want to obey God's commands? First John chapter 2. Talks of, and these texts talk about the idea of loving the brethren. We looked at them in depth last Sunday night. If you want to do that, you can do that on your own. But do you want to be around believers? Do you want to help believers? That's that idea of loving, building them up. How do you feel about Christians? Does it bother you? Yeah, I'm going to be blunt. Does it bother you to go to church? 
You hate church. You don't like them. You don't like being around people. That's probably giving you a vital sign that maybe you don't have the Spirit of God within you. So here, I'll give you another one. First John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. This is the text that says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man loves the world, the love of the Father is not... Okay, so what do you like to do? What's, uh, what's, what do you want out of life? Do you want the things that just this world offers, or is there a higher plane? Are you se- seeking and putting your goals on, on honoring the Lord? Number four was this question. What do you do when you sin? This passage, and you, you need to mark the passage, do an in-depth study, talks about he that has the Spirit of God within him sinneth not. And the word there for sins not isn't that you're 100% perfect, that you'll never sin again, but it isn't your normal makeup that you're giving in to sin on a constant basis that's dominating your life. In fact, if you are a believer, what will happen when you sin is you're going to have conviction. What will happen when you sin is you're going to have a desire to get away from that sin. And so I asked the second question, question, are there any victories in your life over some sinful temptations? What do you feel? How do you respond? That's his evidence of whether you have the Spirit of God within you or not. And then First John chapter 5, the last one we looked at, talked about that confidence to be able to ask anything in his name and he will give it to us as long as we're asking within his will. Do you have specific answers to your prayer? Now some of you might look and say, yes, 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 I've got three out of the five and I'm really confident in, but the other two are a little bit weak. Okay? Well, you, you know, if there is doubts, you study, you pray, you ask the Spirit of God to help you out, and then you take the, the basic truths of these passages and apply them to your heart. Now, with that, let's do the second question. The second question is, that if a person gets saved, can they ever lose their salvation? Again, I remind you that in this community, more than any other communities that we've ever seen or been around, there is a preponderance of churches that teach you can lose your salvation. And that you, it's, it's just temporary. Well, I don't believe the Bible teaches that, and here's why. The Bible would indicate we can be sure, we can know that we have eternal life for these reasons. Number one, in our notes that we had looked at last week, salvation is all by God's grace. It's not by us. We didn't bring about our salvation. We don't keep our salvation. It's a work of grace. In fact, he talks in Galatians. He writes and he says, if you were begun by the Spirit of God, how do you think you're going to keep on going? Is it by your strength or by the Spirit of God? Here, let's give you number two. Number two, when you got saved, you became part of a family. You became part of God's family. There was multiple verses that we looked at last week that talked about him giving power to become the sons of God. And I made the observation that uh, this passage implies that before you're born again, you are not a child of God. It is something that you come into. Somebody gave me a question with that in mind, and they asked this question. Not all men are the children of God correct? And that's true. Not all men are his spiritual family. What about a child who passes away being, being, uh, before being able to hear about salvation, stillborn, accident, uh, abortion, things of that sort? Well, do those children go to heaven if they've never had a chance to call upon the name of Christ? There are two different views in this position. One view is that unless somebody professes Christ, they are damned and doomed, they'll never get to heaven. And there are verses that support that concept. There is another view that says that there isn't a real singular verse, but there's indication that children, uh, individuals like that, children, like in David's case, David said, he shall not come unto me, but I shall go unto him. And an indication that by mercy, by grace, that God takes those youngsters that do not have the ability, the wherewithal, the rationale to be able to call upon Christ, that in mercy and grace, they are safe. 
but they didn't get saved the way we did because they don't have the full accountability or the understanding. And I think that would even apply to people without mental abilities, people that uh, don't, have, don't have that skill set. Uh, and I prefer... I prefer to lean with that, that second point, that I think that God in his mercy and grace has a lot of aborted babies in heaven. And God, by his mercy and grace, that children, before they come to an age, and another instance is that even the children of Israel, they weren't held accountable until there was an age of reasoning and accountability as far as what ages they went into the land, promised land. And so um, I choose to believe that. I understand both positions. I choose to believe the latter, and that's the best I can say on that subject. And if you want to get into more discussion, we can do that another time. The uh, other passage that we talked about is, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God, that idea of being spiritually born, okay? And you're into God's family. It's a parent-child relationship that we use the illustration that says that uh, my kids are always my kids. The fellowship, the relation changes to a degree as far as my uh, total provision for them, to, uh, total answering the questions to all of a sudden stepping back, and they're an adult, they're doing their thing, but we're still parent and child in, in that form of that uh, ongoing relationship. I think, in my mind, that that's exactly the, what the Scripture says, that when I became a child of God, even though that there are some changes that grow over a period of time, I am still forever the child, God's child. I might sever fellowship, but I don't sever the relationship. The same as my kids, they might sever my fellowship, but they don't sever the relationship. However, there are some individuals that here in America, they want to break off their parent-child relationship. There's an article that came out of Chicago here in August that there's a group movement there in Chicago that parents want to be able to have their kids get more financial benefit by being orphaned. And so the government will give them more benefits if the parents and the children divorce themselves from each other and the parents no longer claim responsibility for the child. Would you, money cause you to give up your parental privilege? Hmm. Hmm. Isn't that interesting? Our society, there's that concept. I don't believe God is motivated by money. I don't think that. I, and I don't know about you. I would never deny my children just so that they could get more benefits financially. That's just dumb. Okay? That's just selfish. That's greedy. Uh, God isn't like that. Okay, God isn't saying, okay, I'm going to deny you so that you get more things out of this world. It just doesn't fit God's nature whatsoever. Let me give you a third idea. Okay, as we move along, we say, okay, salvation is a work of grace. Number two, you entered into an unbroken relationship. Number three, you are in Christ. Let me ask you this question. When you hear the term in Christ, what does that mean? What does that mean, you are in Christ? By the way, this phrase, in Christ, shows up dozens and dozens and dozens of times in the New Testament. And it's a very important phrase. What's it mean to be in Christ? What's that? Part of his body? Okay, that's one way to put it. Great. What else? Okay, in his family. Good way to put it. What else? Clothed in his righteousness. Good explanation. What else? Anything else? Other thoughts? Being born again? Great. What's that? Okay, you're going to have adoration for him? Anything else? Does it, does it include these? You are in him and he's in you. Yes, yes. Okay. Um, God sees him when God looks at you? Is that true? Okay, let's put this. You share some of his virtue. He shares some of your... He, he took your sin, you share his virtue. 
Is that true? We became the righteousness of Christ in him. Okay, um, so there, when you use this phrase, there is a legal implication in Scripture, okay, when we're talking about in Christ, okay, just like, just like your kids are in your family, do you have a legal responsibility for them? Okay, you are in marriage, okay, we're in this relationship, we're in it, do we, are we bound legally? Yes, no? Okay, okay, so there's a legal implication. There's a positional aspect. That as God looks, as we say, okay, this is positionally how God views us. Let's look at this. There's practical benefits. Let's build on this, and let's see, okay, what does it mean to be in Christ? Okay, um, the illustration I would use if I were teaching this lesson to a new convert is I would remind them that in the Old Testament, they had cities of refuge, okay? Do you remember what they were? What'd you, what was the city of refuge? What was it used for? Protection from, for who? Not, not criminals. You said it. Accidentally taking somebody's life. Somebody accidentally taking a life. Okay? They could run to one of the different, and you have the listing, you have the passage. They could run to one of the cities of refuge. Then... In that city of refuge, if the relatives, if the others, uh, peoples from the other community where the death took place, they would come and the leaders who were, these were Levitical cities, so it was going to be, your judge and jury were going to be some of the Levites. They would say, okay, there was an accident, Larry, you're, you, you brought up so many years ago. Larry had committed an accidental death with somebody that he was working with farm machinery. He would run to this, this place. The people from that community would come. Larry would, be, would be come to a trial. And Larry could basically say, sanctuary, sanctuary. And they would try him. If he was found guilty of purposefully taking the person's life, he was not harbored in that city. So let's not, let's, let's not have the idea that anybody who committed a crime could run to that city and they could stay there forever. That's not true. Okay, it was dealing with an, you know, like a manslaughter that was accidental, secondary things of that sort. If he was found that he it was an accident, he wasn't, he didn't premeditate this. He could stay in that city, and he would find refuge in that city. And the family, the other community, who weren't convinced, who wanted revenge, remember, it's a revenge society. Okay, if they they couldn't touch him, as long as what happened. He has to stay within the city walls. Okay? Give up farming, do something else. What was the other? How long did this last? It's not lifetime. No. Do you remember, remember what it was? It wasn't, it wasn't a number. Till the high priest, the current high priest died. When the current high priest died, then it was all over. He didn't have to stay in the city. If he went out of the city, what's the risk? Okay, then it's back to that risk. But otherwise, he had to stay with the city. If he left the city in any of that period of time where he was still subject, they could take revenge, and then it's a whole different case. But it was a city of refuge. In the New Testament, what is our city of refuge? It's an illustration. Okay, it's being in Christ. 
Okay, being in Christ, he is our city of refuge. That is referred to when we talk about that idea that he is our refuge, our strength, he provides both. And so that idea of being in Christ is going to provide that protection. Now look at this passage. There is therefore no, no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit. What is promised, very simple, but in your notes, if you're taking somebody through this, you want to point out what's promised to them that are in Christ. What's the promise in this verse? Okay, no condemnation. Just very simple. No condemnation. No judgment. No, no uh, pronouncement that they're guilty, they're going to hell. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Let's ask the questions. What do all men have in common with each other? According to this verse, what do we all have in common? We all die. We all die. Um, is he talking about, look at the whole passage. Is he talking about physical death? Could be. Is there a different death that's clearly implied? Spiritual death. How do you know that? What's that? Yeah, because the second half of the verse clarifies what the first half of the verse is talking about. Okay? The second half of the verse is saying that we're talking about spiritual life, spirit, therefore we're talking about spiritual death. And so, for as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. So we have this fact that we are in death. We're separated from God. And so what does Christ make possible for all? Okay? By the way, it is, he made it available for all. What is it? Okay, salvation or to be made alive, to be spiritually birthed, to be restored spiritually to this relationship, this born-again idea. It's available to all people. He just didn't die for a few. He died for the whole world. But which ones will be made alive? It's available to all, but what is, the clear, what is the point of clarification in this verse? You have to be in Christ, okay? So you walk that person through that verse and just point out, and, it's, and, and these aren't, you know, people will say to you in a Bible study, they're going to say, well, that's your interpretation. Just walk them through these simple phrases. This isn't, this isn't rocket science. This isn't a problem. It's so clear and explainable. Here's another one. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. We're looking at the benefits in Christ. What happens to those who are in Christ? Okay, you're a new creation. They become a new creation. The new creature, the new creature literally is a new creation uh, in the original language. Okay, what happens to them? As, you know, that means that there's great decisive changes in their life. It means that the old things passed away. By the way, just for your information, write it down um, in, the, in the language that it's used, that the Bible's written in, and whether we, you know, we fully understand this is helpful to us. Old things are passed away. The phrase passed away has the idea once for all. The verb that's used there means it happened once, that it, it's a once and done type thing. Things are passed away, but then it says that they become new. That word and that verbiage of that word is they have become new and they keep on becoming new. Okay, we call it perfect. And so in this verse it says, okay, the old things have passed away, but there is ongoing growth. There is ongoing change taking place. There is ongoing um, maturity that is going to take place, which makes perfect sense with the rest of the scriptures because we get born again, we're in this family, but what do we have to do just like the baby you bring home from the hospital? They have to grow. And how do they grow? You tell them where the fridge is. What do you have to do to help them to grow? 
You have to feed them. You diaper them. You burp them. You do that. You know, all you lose sleep for the three years. Okay. Well, for some of you, 12 years. Okay, you lose, you know, it keeps on, it's a growing process. Let's take this verse. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus. Okay, you're taking somebody through this Bible study. Look at this phrase. What word is going to be confusing to most people? Justified. What's it mean to be justified? We've got to define things. Just as if you didn't sin. Declared righteous. Anything else? Okay, are those, are those sufficient? Let's, let's talk about it. It's a legal term. Remember, this is giving the presentation that this is in the courts of heaven. Something took place when you got born again. Something happened. It's a legal term that says you are no longer guilty of your sin. You're no longer being held guilty for your sin. Legally, it means that you are right with the spiritual laws. You haven't viol- you, you, you're not in violation of the laws. That you don't have a warrant out for your arrest. You don't have a pending um, um, fine, ticket, something like that. It, you're, you're declared, spiritually everything's kind of erased. You are declared to be right with God. And by the way, we can use those terms when you say, and it's, it's come up a couple times, when you say righteous, define your term to an individual who doesn't know the Bible. Righteous means right with God. Okay, so use the terms and be very clear, very simple. According to this verse, okay, what do we learn about justification, salvation? They're hand in hand. They go, they're simultaneous acts. Look at the verse. <clears throat> what does it tell you about salvation when it happened, when you were declared justified, when you came to Christ? It, you what? Salvation is by faith. Okay, what else? It's What? It's through Jesus Christ. It's very clear. It's not through baptism. It's not through church. Okay, you're taking somebody through. You're, tell, you're reminding them when they came to Christ, it wasn't by their good looks, their good works. It's through Christ. Anything else? Anything else you got? Go ahead. You get peace with God. Okay, now, uh, Jerry, bring peace. There's two types of peace that show up in the Bible. The type of, okay, I'm at peace. Everything's fine. And then there's another type of peace. It's the peace that we're not in conflict. We're not having issues. We're getting along. Which one is this? This is the getting along one. This is that we don't have conflicts going. That now we are in a harmonious relationship with one another. Is that concept. So we could say justification is something. And by the way, just for your information. Again, and it's even in English. This is a passive verb which means. Or participle which means it's something you didn't do. But it happened to you. You didn't justify yourself. That's a very important theological truth. Many churches are saying justify yourself by doing Good works. Okay, this is, this is very clear in this passage. So mark your Bible, mark this down. Justification is an action. Okay, and again, this is one of those verbs that's very clear that it's a perfect verb. It has the idea it happened once in the past with ongoing... Uh, write down this illustration. Your marriage. Your marriage. Okay? It, use this as your illustration. What day were you married? Did it happen over a period of years and years and years that you got married? No. Was there a day? Okay. You got married on that day. Did it have continuing results? 
<laughs> don't, don't be snide. Okay. You got married on that day. Were you, do, do you continue with that to be married? Yes. Okay. That's the verb. That it's, you, it, there was a one-time moment, but it's ongoing. There was a one-time moment that you got justified, but it continues on. Okay, that you have been justified. Having been justification comes by faith that was stated. It's a legal idea. The reason I want you to catch this is we're going to talk more about this week and next week. It is a legal, not an emotional idea. L- l- let me uh, see if I can put it, put it this way. Do you ever have moments where you don't feel like you're a child of God? Okay, you got, okay there, there's a flu bug going around. You've got sickness, and it's all over your body. And you say, ah, I've got the joy of the Lord. I am so excited. No, you don't even feel, you feel like dying. Okay? You don't, there's moments you might even come to church. You don't feel like the Spirit of God is in you and bubbling over. You feel like you are just been smashed to the road. Okay? There was, and I gave you my illustration. I got saved, but then I went out, and that, that next morning, I went out working on the car that my dad told me to work on, cracked my knuckles, I cursed, I cussed, and felt like, oh, I'm not saved. I'm cussing, and I curse. I use the same vulgar language I used the day before. And I had that moment, oh, am I really saved? Salvation is not based upon feelings. It's based upon facts. Um somebody's going through marriage problems. They're having a bad week. They don't feel close to their spouse. They feel that there's a lot of difficult moments. There's no peace. There's no harmony. Are they still married? But they don't feel. Or they, in fact, may not want to be at that moment. Are they still married? Because it's a fact it's not a feeling. What's the ideal? Having the fact plus the feelings, right? But what I'm saying is too often Christians work by feelings, not the facts. We're giving facts here. Facts is once you're saved, you're no longer an enemy of God, but declared legally in right relationship to him. Let's add this. It's all done by Jesus Christ. Let's continue. Let's look at verses that would just that you would use, okay? Talking about, and your notes would say that, that means at the moment God declared you righteous, you're no longer held guilty. This is a profound thought. That when I prayed and got saved, all my sins in the past were forgiven. And that's it. No. Okay, why did you say no? Okay, what about my present sins? What about my future sins? He died for them all. Okay, and that's a wonderful thought. Okay, and once justified, we're not retried. Let's do this verse. There's a word that shows up, and I put it on the board. It says, the righteousness may be imputed unto them also. Now, is the word, the, do you normally use the word imputed in your conversation? Okay, we've got to define the term. Okay, let's define the term. What does it mean to impute? What did you say, Bob? Okay, it's to your account. Pooch said the same thing, to your account. Let's, let's, okay, let's pull open the dictionary. In a legal sense, the term imputed is used to describe an action fact quality knowledge that is charged for one individual based upon the actions of the other. They're responsible. Could it be this? Could, 
Could you, you go to work? Leon has a job. He goes to work. And for, it's allowed. For some reason, it's allowed. I can go to work with him. And all of a sudden, well, let's, let's change it up. He has a job. He breaks his leg. And they allow me to come in and work for him that day. And he is going to get the paycheck. Isn't that nice of me to go work for somebody for him to get the money? Would it ever happen in reality? No. Okay. It could. Some of us, some of you have done that type of thing. You've gone and done the work for a person. By me doing his hours, the wage is imputed to him. He didn't do the work, but out of mercy and grace, I or you took his place and our labors were imputed so he could get the wage. Um, it could happen in grades, okay? That all of a sudden, you know, out of the clear blue, I got an A, you got an F. I, we go to the teacher and I say, I want to exchange grades. That's not going to happen either, okay? Um, but we do that type of thing. That's imputation, okay? We would say it's more like when money and bills come in, it would be like you going down and paying my mortgage. Do you see how the illustration just changed? Okay, you do to me rather than me for you. Okay, you paying my bill, you took your money and you imputed it to my account. That's imputation. Okay, that's what we're talking about. It's to pass to one's account. So, in this text, get the text. In the text, Abraham, okay, was, was justified by faith, is the previous verses. J- Abraham was not justified by doing the circumcision or offering his son. That is not clearly, not what the text wants us to understand, but by faith... Then he was declared justified before God. And so, it, so the idea is that righteousness, being right with God, was imputed unto Abraham. Now, picking that up, what's imputed to us if we believe? Hmm. Now it was written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but for us also to whom it shall be imputed if we believe on him that raised up. What is the beginning of that whole verse talking about? Righteousness. Righteousness is imputed to us. By the way, what righteousness do you have? What, what do you have in and of yourself? Nothing. We have no righteousness of our own. Where does righteousness come to? Come from? It comes from Jesus Christ if we believe. So we are beneficiaries of Christ's righteousness so that when God looks at us, he sees us as basically he sees his son. It's not that we deserve. Okay, l- let me give you an illustration. Uh, a classic illustration on the Old Testament. I use it every wedding, okay, to share the gospel. According to Isaiah, what are we dressed like? What do our, what do our good works look like? Filthy rags. You understand and you know that the word there for filthy rags are dung-filled rags. Not just dirty. They are dung-filled. And that's in the Hebrew, which makes them... Well, where do you want to put out there? Disgusting, smelly, vulgar, offensive. It's not just like going out in the yard. Understand the verbiage, the wording he used. It's not like kids going out in the yard and got a stain on their clothes. Okay? And you did what when your kids went out and played? You said they're going to wear them tomorrow. So, you know, so be it. This is the idea that you would not hang on to a dirty diaper and put your kid back in the dirty diaper. Okay, does that make sense? That's the wording he uses when he says that all of our works of righteousness are as filthy rags. They are offensive. You want to do what with it? 
get it away from you. Okay, take that in mind. That's us before God. So we come before God, and he sees us as highly offensive, disgusting in our own good works. Let's do an Old Testament Jewish wedding. In the Old Testament Jewish wedding, who would dress up? Like today, which one gets really, really dressed up? More so the bride or the groom? The bride, okay. In Old Testament times, who got really gussied up? The groom. The groom was the more gussied up at times, and he would be the one that would deck out like the bride or a little bit more. During the ceremony, and this is mentioned, and I forget the exact verse off the top of my head. I, I remembered it yesterday, and I can't remember today. Uh, Isaiah 64, 65. It talks about the groom putting his robe. What it is is, during the ceremony, I would take off my beautiful garment, my wonderful garment, and I would put it on Deb's shoulders. Okay? And therefore, thank you for volunteering. Okay? Therefore, everybody in the room, when they look at her outfit, whose outfit did they see? They see my outfit, okay, or his outfit. And what would that signify? Okay? She's mine. I'm going to protect her. I'm going to care for her. Yeah, all those things, it was there. All those things were there. And that, that when people look at, if people do anything to her, they're doing to me. Okay, because we are now... Okay, so taking that whole idea, okay, that whole idea that they are now one as a couple, and see, being in Christ means we are covered with his garments of righteousness, and what happens to our vulgar, dung-filled garments? They're, they're gone. Whose garment does God see? Christ. He doesn't see your my good works for going to church. He sees Christ's purity when he looks at us. Okay? How long does Christ give us that purity? Forever. Okay, we're in Christ. So we have these thoughts that, okay, salvation isn't a work that we do. When we got saved, we became a child of God. We're in Christ. Let's do this one. This, this whole, how do I know that I'm really saved? I'm not kept by me. I'm kept by God. You know what? I don't keep my salvation by wearing a certain attire of clothes. I don't keep salvation by keeping my hair cut a certain length. I don't keep my salvation by wearing a tie to church. Okay. Did a, did a tie bring anybody to salvation? No. They're a good thing to get rid of. Okay. Um, I don't keep my salvation by getting baptized. I don't keep my salvation by going to church. What other things do people say that they have to do to keep their salvation? What other works? What's that? Keep the Ten Commandments. What's that? Help others. And that's a good thing to do. Okay. Give to the church. Okay, if you don't give, you lose your salvation. Well, that's one way to keep the budget going. Do churches ever do that? Okay. Um, so you, whatever you want to put down there. We do not keep ourselves saved. Okay, we didn't save ourselves in the first place. So how can we keep ourselves saved? So let's look at the verses. They that went out. Now, here's an interesting verse. Dissect it. They that went out from us, they did that. They went out from us because they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that they were not of us. Do some believers ever fall away from the faith? Professing believers. Do they ever fall away? 
He's writing to a group of people, possibly, probably the church of Ephesus where he had been ministering at one time. He's writing to them and he is saying that some who were with you are no longer with you. Does that happen? Okay. And he's saying to them, okay, he's saying, what does this show about them? They didn't belong to the family in the first place. Please do not make this the application. Do not say, oh, some people who are in Faith Baptist are no longer in Faith Baptist, therefore they were never ever really saved. That is horrendous, vile approach. Those who are a part of our ministries, who they have been led by the Spirit of God to go elsewhere, they are still, if they were born again, which I have full confidence many of them were born again, if they are, they are still our brothers and sisters in Christ. They are not our enemies. Amen, amen, amen. Okay? They may not like me, what I do, how I preach, the length I preach. They may have chosen for different reasons because of certain... That is between them and the Lord. They are my brothers and my sisters in Christ. How dare I or you make vicious attacks against people who have opted to go to a different church? Is that clear enough? Okay. However, are there some, when there wasn't, back in these days, when there wasn't much choice of assembly, was, was there some that went away because of other reasons? And could there have been some who used to be in this ministry, but maybe they came because parents, that's, that's, you, you brought, parents made them come. Could it be that they no longer come for this reason? Which would be what? The reason they want no desire to be in an assembly at all with believers is because... They never, they weren't really saved. Going back to, remember what he said? We asked this at the very beginning. How do you feel about the brethren? Some people may have been forced to come to church. Okay, and, but then as they got their own free will to exercise, no longer under parent, they choose never ever again to enter a church door. What might that indicate? That could indicate they were never really saved. Is that legitimate from this verse? Yes, yes, okay. Can you think of any Bible instances of people saying they were saved, but they really weren't? I think of one. Judas. Judas, okay. That he claimed... Oh, and by the way, did Judas look like he was a believer for a period of time? In fact, did the others respect him? They made him the treasurer. Okay. Um, and so there's that possibility. Now, with that in mind, let's talk about this doctrine, and we'll pick up. There is a doctrine that is the terminology, if you read about it, it's called perseverance. It's the idea that Christians will truly persevere, that they will stay within the faith, and they will follow through in their walk with the Lord, and they will persevere. Okay? Um, they keep on living the, the, the Christian life to the very end. Okay, this, this is a good and commendable idea, 
but I think there's a stronger way of looking at it, and I'll explain why. I think a term that might be a better term, and I'm dealing with semantics, that might not be perseverance, but preservation. Preservation means this, okay? That the keeping saved is not up to us persevering at all. It is up to God preserving us. Let, let me throw you an illustration. Lot. If you knew Mr. Lot back in those days, would you have thought he was a believer? In the beginning, would you, would you say when he is living in Sodom and Gomorrah, what we know about him in those last days in Sodom and Gomorrah, would you say, oh, he is an outstanding believer? Yes or no? Okay. I, I'm going to be more blunt, okay? There is absolutely nothing in his life that gives evidence he is godly. He's there. He offers his daughters to the men. He is told to get out of the city, and the angels have to do what? They have to basically drag him out of the city. And then, well, then he's up in the mountains... Incest with daughters. I look at that and go, everything, every indication would say to me, he never probably was a true believer. And yet we read in the New Testament, the phrase is given, the title is given to him. Anybody know? Righteous Lot. Righteous Lot. I would not have built a doctrine of preservation, uh, perseverance on Lot's life. But how do I know he's still saved? Preservation. It's God, it's not Lot. Does that make sense? This, by the terminology, to me, is far more inclusive that says even... And by the way, are there backslidden Christians in the New Testament? Yes, the church of Corinth is filled with them. And he says, I could not write unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal. But he calls them brethren. It's not perseverance... That, that identifies them, it's what? God's work of preservation. That God kept them in his family, not them. Let's pick up from there next week, okay, and build up that idea. Oh, man, there's so much more that was supposed to be said. Okay? Thanks for listening.